Yeah, if anyone's married to like a famous novelist, you should bring it up at the beginning of the podcast instead of the end, like last week. <laughs> so, so you don't just you like what? blow Sadie's mind <laughs> like an what? hour in. <laughs> oh my god! We just do that up top. Our, our guest last week, Kevin, who's my friend, who I met in that like building a second brain, note taking personal knowledge management thing. Uh, he's Ursula oh. Vernon's husband. <laughs> oh my gosh! I don't know who that is, yeah. but I assume it's famous. <laughs> 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 and like i knew that but then he just like dropped that and sadie was like because <laughs> their their wife had read some of her horror novels under her uh, another pen name of hers or something man yeah All they're right. cool they like live in, live in north carolina he's got a productivity podcast they raise chickens like <laughs> they seem Wait, cool. they raise chickens or race chickens they Either raise them cool. oh raise them. chickens oh, okay. well yeah that's all right chickens too. yeah <laughs> I can get all jazz for racing chickens. Yeah. yeah. Can you race yeah. bunnies? Yes, you can. Uh, sure. Why not? They do like a uh, not dressage. What's the thing the horses do where they have to jump the sticks? Oh, steeple, steeplechase. No, 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 yeah. no. Steeplechase is a straight up race. I think. I thought that was a road. I think it is dressage. Isn't it? Maybe dressage is just prancing. No, around. dressage is the oh. dressage is the stuff. like really gay horsey walk stuff. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It's no longer an Olympic event, though, unfortunately. I think it's been dropped. Was it ever? Yeah, wow. yeah, it sure was. Apparently, tug of war was an Olympic event in like the early 1900s or something. A lot of cheating, though. Yeah, and poetry. and <laughs> Oh, and uh, pigeon shooting, where they would actually like throw pigeons in the air, and then marksmen would need to shoot them with rifles. Yeah, they had some weird stuff in the Olympics. Whoa, I guess that's why We should go back to pigeons. being all naked. Go back to our uh, roots. No. <laughs> oh, they're uh, being naked. People with oil on them. Well, I, I do think they should <laughs> go back to holding them on Mount Olympus just every year. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't destroy anyone's city. They can't like ruin LA for the yeah. third time. Yeah, they should just have a permanent place where they just do it all the time. And it should be out yeah, in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> yeah. Where they won't bother anyone. International waters. Anything goes. Yeah. Just a bunch of like athletically hot people wrestling. <laughs> like like the Turkish uh, mud oil wrestling, that's a the that's church, what's up in life. Church mud oil wrestling. What church? Tur- Turkish. And oh, Turkish. They they just there's like covered in oil, and they like are wearing clothes, but they just like stick their hands in each other's pants constantly. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. I've remember, yeah, gay. I've seen this on a documentary. Yeah, it's part of the grappling process. They like really. Get under the you just gotta get lower in level. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very sportsman like. <laughs> yeah, church wrestling is sumo. That's where you go to church yeah, and people say. wrestle. Like, <laughs> I mean, I know I haven't been to church in a while, and when I did go to church, it was uh, Lutheran, Elka Lutheran, and and we may have been a little cash, but I've never heard of church wrestling. <laughs> Actually, if you do like independent wrestling venues, I think those are mostly in church basements around the country. Oh. So probably, yeah, probably lots I of church wrestling. Church basements, okay. the country would fall apart without church basements, to be honest. Yeah, I went to, mm-hmm. when I did boxing training, it was in the ba- basement of a church. There you go. Catholic church. It's free land. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it's free real estate. Didn't somewhere free in Canada just start saying that there was a town in Canada that has like no income? And so they started like saying, if you're a church, you have to actually apply for tax. Yeah, that's a Colowit. And not that they have no yeah. income, but that's, yeah, it's up north and they're a little. Really up north. Yeah, that, that just happened recently. So, yeah, they have to apply. They don't automatically get tax exemption. Yeah, it was right before the Pope came and visited. <laughs> Did the Pope go to a Colowit? I didn't know that. No. Went yeah, to, to yeah, apologize for the residential schools. 
I'm Justin. I'm a Skullcom librarian. My pronouns are he and him. I'm Sadie. Uh, I work IT at a public library. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Jay. I'm a music library director, and my pronouns are he, him. And we have guests. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm John. Uh, I'm a digital scholarship librarian in Canada, and my pronouns are he, they. And hello, uh, my name is Tim. I'm also a digital scholarship librarian just down the road from John, and uh, my pronouns are he, him. That's great. Our sound effects have gotten better since last time you were on, John. Uh, yeah, I have a whole soundboard now. I have like, uh, probably like 50. We've refined this show. Big time. Yeah. I mean, well, we've been doing this for, for that, over a year uh, now. That Casper mattress money. <laughs> we don't even Food have a box, Patreon. Yeah, right. We just do this for, for funsies, for shits and giggles. Mm-hmm. John, you were talking about wanting to go on podcasts. So I said, come on our podcast again. Yes. And you, you've got things you want to say. And I understand that. I, I do. That impulse, I, because uh, this whole podcast started because a podcast I listened to thought I could come on. And I think the other hosts didn't like the idea. So I was like, all right, fine. I'm just starting my own. I'm going to do the episode. <laughs> and it's a good way to make friends. Yeah, it's very nice. I really had a really wonderful time the last time. So I'm, I'm stoked. And I, I had a podcast of my own with another person that I think it was four episodes long because that person left academia and could no longer talk as freely as she could. <laughs> she was I remember academia. listening to that podcast. Yeah, yeah. it was a good one. Yeah. We, we do one out of our lab. Well, our yeah. lab is gone now. Well, that's another. Maybe we'll get into that story. But uh, yeah, it's we the the whole point of it was to launch a pun on the world, and it's called Steering the Digital Scholarship. Digital scholarship. Yep. Yeah, and I that's remember. it. Yeah. And then the enthusiasm instantly deflated out of it. <laughs> I think one of my colleagues in the library started a podcast with his wife, who's one of our music faculty. And I don't know how many episodes that lasted, but I don't think they're still doing it. But that's were- the hardest part about doing a podcast. You all have figured it out, though, is that you have to do the podcast. You can't just, yeah. you know, Doesn't it's just not just done. an idea. You got to work on it. Yeah. Yeah. It is a lot less work than other things, though, like writing papers, I find. Mm. And uh, Justin, it seems like you like editing and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you hate it. Yeah. I don't mind it. The, the weird thing about editing audio, though, is because for any other process, I have music playing or I'm listening to a podcast. I can't do that while auditing, editing <laughs> audio. Except I can kind of do some stuff by sight of the waveforms. But like, you know, like if there's certain, if I don't know someone's voice or something, I don't know what their ums and errs and sniffs look like. So then I have to like listen to it until I get used to it. <laughs> It's so intimate that you like know what my sniffs look like, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know things about my voice that them. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It is very you strange. Know. I had someone from the University of Toronto Press reach out about Ooh. because they are starting a new subscribe to open journal and they kind of wanted to know how to sell it to libraries. Well, they were also like selling it to me. And I was like, look, I we have no subscription money right now. But they also said, oh, we want to do like podcasts. And so I might get to consult with them for podcasts if they reach back out to me. That'd be cool. Oh, that's neat. Be like every other media platform suddenly just went podcast all in on podcasts. So UTP will switch to podcast only soon enough. <laughs> yeah. Pi- like pivot to video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pivot to podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Pivot to TikTok. Pivot to podcasts. Well, that's, that's the thing, though, is that no one can follow through on podcasts. What was the um, the royal motherfuckers? They got like $30 million to start a podcast. Oh, yeah. The, the mm-hmm. Harry and, and they, Meghan or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And they're yeah. the good ones. 
That was I mean, really hilarious because when they first left the UK, they like moved to Vancouver for all of like two months and everybody here was jizzing themselves like, oh, they're going to live here forever. Wah! No, they're not going to live here forever. And they fucked off to Los Angeles right after that, mm-hmm. as, if I recall correctly. But boy, Megan's were people Canadian, stoked. right? No, no, she's not. But she lived in she lived in Toronto for a while because they filmed a t- their TV show. The TV here. show. So she lived okay, here, yeah. but I don't think yeah. she's a citizen. No, she's, she's American a... because yeah. I remember someone making a joke about um, – because they were saying like, is she going to run for like office? And someone was like, we need to pass that amendment to the constitution from like the eight, eight, from like 1800 that was like, if you have a royal title, you cannot serve in the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I don't want hmm. them in power in charge of anything, but I like they were like y'all are racist assholes. We're gonna go fuck off to Canada, and also they're they're hot, and that's all I want them to be in this world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't want them to do anything else, like Harry parties, and they and they're the only royals where I'm like they fuck. I can tell. <laughs> the other ones, I'm like, I think they just like looked at each other and then something happened. And the fact they were like, y'all suck. We're fucking off. So, but then I don't want yep. them in power over anything. And I don't want them getting more money from people. <laughs> yep. Canada needs to pull up Barbados where we officially, you know, disown the royal family as our head of state and just get Damn on with man. life. But- at least you never had to swear in front of a judge that you love the queen. I had to do that. <laughs> Fuck. My laugh scared Arthur. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a job with the federal government for a few months, so I had to perform an oath to, to the queen to, like, you know, ensure I wouldn't perform treason, I guess, at the Auditor General's office. But huh. all right, God well, there you go, save then. the queen. I think I had to do something like that when I got my passport. Don't you have to take some kind of oath uh, when you get your passport for the first time? I don't. Not that I remember. Maybe. Hmm. If, when I worked I in California, I had to sign a loyalty oath to the U.S. government. Oh, yeah, those are fun. My wife also worked there, and she said, I can't sign this because she's a Canadian citizen. I'm like, I'm not going to sign this. And they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> and so <laughs> I guess it was. <laughs> One of my friends from my gaming group, he is Australian, and he recently just got, I think, U.S. citizenship or something because his wife is a professor at UNH, where I used to work. And he was, like, telling us, like, the ridiculous questions on some of the tests. And he's like, you know, we're all co- fucking commies, right? So he's like, no, I'm not a communist. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. For whatever stupid fucking questions. That's absolutely test. a question on the citizenship is, have you ever been a communist sympathizer as far as I know? And, uh, Definitely yeah, no, not. That's a thing. <laughs> yep. Nope. No commies here. No, I'm not a pinko commie. What are you talking about? <laughs> so we're going to talk so, about... Library tech, tech labor. labor. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. <laughs> and and I'm going to stop for a second because there's uh, we're going to speak. I think we're trying. At least I will try not to speak from a Canadian context exclusively. But there's a lot of difference in the labor situation between Canada and the United States that probably Tim can absolutely correct me because he's way more up on this than I am. That can kind of be interesting to to point out, and that is we like nowhere in Canada is there, for instance. Um, right to work, to my knowledge. There's no right to work. Even in Alberta, there's no right to work. And indeed, there's in the US, like if you're in a union, my understanding is you can opt out of the union and not pay dues, but somehow still be covered by certain negotiations. In Canada, that was, is it? It might be a state to state thing. In Canada, there was a 19... Because of Janus. Yeah, Mm -hmm. there was a 1946 decision in Canada called the RAND Rand formula is what it ended up being. And Rand formula says that if you're in a labor group and you're covered by the labor group, you have to pay into it. There's no opting out. 
which is good in my opinion. I don't know how labor yeah. unions in the U.S. survive yeah. with that kind of scheme, but that's probably why. <laughs> yeah, it Sorry, depends on. on what st- it depends on what your state you're in, and then yeah, even yeah. I know it in at UNH specifically, and when I was there, like the faculty were AAUP, and yeah. you could you weren't in the union by default because it's New Hampshire, you know the don't tell me what you do, you're not my dad's state, yeah, yeah. and. You could join the union, full dues, or there was like between being a full member and not being in the bargaining unit at all, where it's like you could pay a smaller amount of dues and technically not be a member, but you were still like, you like getting raises. Like, I don't know, like, where it was like, you're kind of ideologically opposed to unions, but you wanted to give the union money to bargain on your behalf or something. I don't know. But you could, there there was like a... Yeah, mm-hmm. I was going to say, is the AAUP an actual union? I thought it was a like a overarching representative body of like count is for us. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. So it's the you know American Association of University Professors, and there are advocacy chapters, and there are collective bargaining okay. chapters. So like new so count some chapters, count, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So some chapters are union, and some uh-huh. are just advocacy. And they recently just voted to not merge, but affiliate with AFL CIO. Oh. Huh. Because there's um, like the higher ed branch of that. I forget what it's called, but therefore all AAUP members are going to automatically also be AFL CIO members. (laughs) Now AFT, I think is what the higher, the higher ed branch of AFL CIO is called. Hey John, we should, uh, we should all sign up with Unifor and just make one Uber union. That would be sweet. I would love to be in Unifor. (laughs) One giant union. What if we just had one big union? Yeah, exactly. One big union. Hmm. Arthur can be the mascot because he's a black cat. Uh, well, he's a tuxedo, oh, nice. but he's a fancy <laughs> black cat. But he's not a fat Oof. cat, and that's important. <laughs> he was when I first got him. He was a big boy. He's reformed. Yeah, He's lost his decadence yeah. of his former bourgeois lifestyle. <laughs> you hear that, Arthur? So, John, where did you want to start? Did you want to start with okay. uh, maintainers, or do you want to start with uh, just like opening notes about Canada and the U S differences. Cause that's kind of interesting. Cause I know a lot of Canadian librarians somehow they're very chatty yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> <We're pretty chatty. laughs> and yeah, I so feel in Canada, it's at least in Ontario. And I, I believe this holds pretty much nationwide. It's unusual to have an academic library that isn't unionized. And I, and the Ontario is only two yeah, large ones. Right. If, am I right about that, Tim? It's U of T and, and uh, Waterloo. Yeah. 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 I, when I was working as a librarian in the States, my, my library was absolutely not unionized and I was not labor aware in any sense, really. Uh, and right, very interestingly enough, my, my university, which is that university I worked at, which is very, very conservative, <clears throat> generally, as, at least as conservative as a public school can be, is in a union drive right now. Uh, I, I don't know if they, if they vote. I'm not sure how that vote went. I should look it up. But uh, at least as of a couple months ago, they were in a, they were, they were librarians and faculty were, we're getting ready to unionize, so I should I should follow up and see. Yes. Now the the the, the winds of, of labor change in the states have been really blowing. Like it's there's a lot of private sector unionization going on, or what seems like a lot of private sector unionization. But when I worked in California, there was a union push. I was not I was not a librarian. I was a I was a system administrator, or what they called a programmer analyst, and there was a union push there that failed. And I wonder if they ran it now, whether it would still fail or whether it would continue on because tech people as a general 
group, and I'm not speaking specifically academic, I'm just talking about technologists, tend to view themselves as special little snowflakes and not needing to do labor solidarity kinds of things. And even in uh, librarianship and academia, there's absolutely a, a what I would call a virulent strain of, I am not a trade unionist, I am my own special snowflake. And uh, I'm frankly a little bit surprised that unionization is as high as it is in this country because it's kind of an endemic attitude. And in my own institution's unionization push that succeeded, the one that, that I was involved in, there was a, it was not 100%. It was, a, it was a sizable contingent that even though our, our circumstances were terrible, just awful, there was a, still a sizable number of people that didn't want to be unionized. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, the maintainers thing was something Tim dropped in. Uh, so I don't know, if Tim, if you want to speak to that. Yeah, I, I mean, the the reason why that I, I glom to that is this idea that, uh, well, I have many problems and thoughts about library tech labor, but we don't do anything on the back end in terms of longevity and planning for long term things. And that's why the maintainers initiative to me is really interesting because it specifically draws attention to that. Right. And so it says, you know, you don't just stand up a Web page and walk away from it. You got to maintain it. And, you know, for a collectively a group of or a profession, let's say, that doesn't really emphasize technology, uh, you know, you got to do the whole shebang, snout to, snout to tail, right? So uh, I don't know what more to go beyond that, unfortunately. Like I've got a, a few sort of theses about why library labor is not or library tech labor, pardon me, is not going anywhere because, you know, our leadership doesn't understand it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we as a profession don't seem to uh, prioritize technology stuff. Right. I, I think, you know, and John, I yeah. giggle with you about this all the time. You know, we're, we're still using Mark and Z3950, you know, yeah. that were decades before the modern TCP IP network was created. And those are still like so happy bones, you say right? Zed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I I switch back and forth. My wife thinks I'm a traitor sometimes if I don't say it correctly. So, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea is that we rely on these protocols. We externalize our technology, and that's going to sneak up on us. And it already has in a lot of respects. And you know, the yeah. shout out to the maintainers is is you know let's let's not do this half assed, right? But and and Tim and I have talked about this an awful lot, and I've I've certainly obliviated enough about it on Twitter. But just for uh, just for reminder's sake, my own institution. Uh, where I work at in Ontario was, as far as I know, is the most self-sufficient IT institution of any place, maybe in the country and certainly in the province, uh, in that we have, we control our own IT destiny fairly thoroughly. There are points of contact that we have that work really well with central IT and other, and other places, but we do not, we do not yield our infrastructural decisions to outside of our house. And unfortunately that happens all over the place, everywhere else. (laughs) as far as I can tell at Tim's place and other places where there's just like, okay, we're, we're not, we don't want to, we don't want you to have your own machine to play with because I don't know, you'll do something bad. I don't know. And so therefore we're going to centralize it all with it. And if you want to install an SSH client, sign this 10 page form and triplicate and wait a year for us to do it. And, and at my place, if we want to put up a service and it doesn't cost anything, and it's Unix based for me anyway, then I can do it. And I don't even have to ask my boss. I just do it as long as it's inside the firewall. If we want to make it like a production service, then we, you know, we go through a little more orthodoxy, but as far as test bedding stuff, you got an idea. Okay, here it is. Go nuts. Uh, And it's something which is, doesn't happen. 
I don't know how often it happens in the States. It probably happens more often just because there's way more stuff. But in Canada, it is so rare. It's just it's just heartbreaking. Uh, and oh, sorry, do go on, Tim. No, I was, don't let me interrupt you if you're on to something. No, 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 no. Okay. I was going to say, like, I'm, I've enrolled in a PhD program to study this specific question. So I'm referring to it as my spite PhD <laughs> because uh, my dissertation is going to focus on acceptable use policies that are stopping faculty members from doing research that they want to do. And, you know, I could tell you a story about my place where someone needed remote access to a bunch of hardware that they had on a grant. And, you know, the IT department said, no, it's not going to happen. And then the, the professor responded by saying, how can you not do this? It's technically feasible. S larger schools in the province uh, can do this. Why can't you do this for us? And then it was once the union got involved, suddenly things started working out. So... I think, you know, one of the things I've experienced anyways, I spent some time doing governance on a committee at, at my place of work where we do the IT and infrastructure stuff. And the that there is a hokey way to say, it, but it's a battleground because you have administrators just seeking to protect the school from security and liability. And then you have faculty members desperately trying to get stuff done. Like John's workplace is a, a dream environment. I wish I could have something as malleable and fun and, and engaging as that. Like I had to get a grant last year to do a project to stand up a little, it's just a, I don't want to get too technical, but it's just like a search engine based on the top of some, some data, which was maybe 80 gigs. I, like I had to go to the cloud. There was no way I could have done it in cloud, like in, in, in shop because there was no method. There was no mechanism for me. And now that the grant is coming up done. You know, I gotta, I gotta shut it off and that that'll, that'll be the end of it. Right. So, yeah. I mean, I have my weekly complaints about my IT department at work because I'm the only person in the library who could actually ever get them to do anything. And now I've given up on that role because I don't fucking care anymore. I can't deal with them. Um, it's just not my responsibility at yeah, this point. Yeah. But even doing stuff in the cloud has been really hard. Like we can't control our own AWS instance. And so I had to shut off a, an AWS backup a couple weeks back that was letting us, in theory, control our data. But IT had locked it down so much that I couldn't even download stuff out of it. Just, mm. So it wasn't even functional. And I was like, okay, well, I, I'm done with this. I don't care anymore. And uh, yeah, I had to jump out. But acceptable use policies, I want to circle back to that after Sadie jumps in. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, that that's like the true tragedy to me of, especially when I took the library uh, Freedom Projects crash course, is everybody's talking about all the things they'd like to change. And then I'm like, well, have you talked to your IT about it? And they're like, oh, no, like, we don't have IT or... It's, you know, the university, because a lot of the people were academic and it's like, no, it's the university. So they don't, they won't listen to us. They won't do anything. And all of the libraries I've worked at have had their own IT departments. They've been like county based and not had to depend on like a city or anything else. And yeah, it sounds more like what John's got, which is just like, I can propose something and Ooh. actually start like playing around with something. And the thing that always gets me about that is... To me, there is a, how do I say this, a, a parallel between a lot of IT work and a lot of library work in the sense that, you know, IT has the, the CIA cybersecurity thing, which is like a very basic concept for cybersecurity. You know, you have confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And then libraries are all about the same thing, you know, how you give people access to something without 
you know, violating copyright or all of these things. And the, the, that parallel, I feel like is something that IT could really, really work on just because like, we're so paranoid in so many ways, you know, and there's grounds to that. But I feel like a lot of IT people just completely disregard the availability part of their role. (laughs) So, and that's, that's really the tragedy to me, because like, why are you even working in this line of work? Like we, we, we do technology so people can use it. And if you're making it unusable, you're completely like backwashing your own purpose. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been an, an actual de facto sysadmin, but my own, I mean, I am, I am, I am a de facto sysadmin. I mean, a de jure sysadmin, an actual named sysadmin. But the one thing, Sadie, that you've hit on that I think is very, very important is that system administration is a service profession more than anything else. And my own feeling is that the more an IT department says no, the more that people find these workarounds and the less necessary IT becomes. Yeah, now, if yeah. you're in a straight up solid unionized position, maybe you don't care like, oh, I'm going to retire. I'm going to fuck off and it's not going to matter. And maybe that's your justification. But I think every time you say no, and sometimes it's good to say no. I don't want to say it's you say yes to everything. But every time you say no and you just shut someone off. The, that avenue is shut off and they, they become less likely to want to work with you in the future. And it's a lesson that not very many IT people internalize is the fact that you can know yourself out of, not literally out of a job, but you can know other people out of a career. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing that gets me about that is if you say no to your users and they find a way around it, yeah, that's yeah. an avenue that you don't know that you don't have control over. Like right. how many times have we heard people using Google Drive to upload and download documents oh. onto networks and stuff? And it's like, how how do you even know what your users are doing? So it's it's not just it's not just like not user friendly. It's it could actually be a cybersecurity risk. The parable of libguides, I think, fits in beautifully here, right? John knows my thoughts on this and, and various other people, but. Here's a platform that just lets you make a web page. We couldn't do that. You know what I mean? We had to outsource that. And now it's a cloud-based you know, based thing that everyone throws money at all year round. If you had a little bit of chops, you can have a WordPress put together with you know some support yeah. and emulate the same dang thing. But no, here, here, here's a cottage industry. Well, it's not a cottage industry anymore. It's a monolith, right? And you know, maybe someone ate our lunch is how I like to think of it anyways, but. And, and librarians love libguides because it takes, you know, the IT can't say no to it. It's something that they fully control. And it reminds me. And I'm we're gonna go really off bad week. at them too. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it reminds yeah. me. Like I remember reading an article about ketchup. This this is related. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say it was a Malcolm Gladwell article. And it was it was really good. And in it, like they're, they're talking to marketing people about ketchup and they say, yes, when when children use ketchup, it's the first thing they can use that they can control the portion and how it's, you know, how, how much ketchup you put on a thing and how you arrange it on a thing. It's the first item of control that they have over their own food. And I do not mean to liken non-IT librarians to literal children. That's a bad metaphor. And I'm already sorry that I made it, but it is something that they can control apart from IT. And if you are a, a non-technological, non-IT librarian, I don't want to say non-technological savvy because that's not very fair, but non-IT librarian, and you're just, you're just sick of having to, 
you know, ask, get on your hands and knees and supplicate yourself to IT to do a minor thing. This rush of power you have is very addictive. And that's why I think that as an IT person, you cannot be a dick to people because they just, they'll start installing lib guides. I mean, they probably will anyway, but you know. What a Sorry, fucking concept. Don't be a dick to your users, huh? I know. Shocking. <laughs> just, I don't know. It, it seems novel. Gosh, I don't man. know. Maybe we should try it. Going going back to like the, the maintainers, there was something I saw that was interesting because I was going through the information maintainers uh, community on them. And they talked about something that I find really important that I don't think anyone in academia knows how to do, which is lazy consensus which is when you're in a meeting, you run decisions on consensus, which is unless someone objects, it doesn't need to go to a vote. It doesn't really need to go even to a discussion if you're just like, I'm going to do this. Or in the original sense, I think it was you just start doing it. And then if anyone objects within like 72 hours or five days or something, you just say, oh, okay, then we can put it up to a vote if we have to. Then, And I run all my meetings like this simply because I've just been around a lot of anarchists in my life. And I just that's how they run meetings most of the time because it works and you like have to do it because otherwise people are going to fight forever. So you, you put up all these barriers by like running things past people and it slows things down a lot. And it really, when you build that into your processes, the machine gets away from you and now you're working for the machine, which is something that uh, I was reading the, the fragments on machines from Marx that you put in the notes. And so now I'm thinking about working to machines timetables rather than our own. I think we build that into our systems where we have to do all the IT prep again and again and again for things that, you know, I'm just sneaking stuff under the wire at this point. Like we have services I'm technically supposed to be submitting paperwork for. And I'm just like, nah, they don't, they don't really care. They don't give a shit as long as like I don't get us ransomware yeah, that, that is essentially how my uh, our departmental meetings operate at my place is that uh, there's no – yeah, there is a little lazy consensus going on. Notably, that is absolutely not how union stuff goes because we hew very, very, very you know, thoroughly to Robert's Rules of Order and the collective agreement and all that. But in in, in my own non-union – well, when I'm in my, my department and not talking union stuff, then yeah, like we're going to do a thing, then we just do a thing. And most of the time people don't object and, but people like to be kept in the loop and that's good. But uh, yeah, I was just like, okay, let's do it. And it's done. All right. I'm going to take responsibility because it's my idea. Okay. Tim. Yeah. At, uh, at my place, like I, as I mentioned, I was chair of this committee and, and it's very Baroque in the way it operates. You know, you, you, you need to, you know, you know, clench the mace before you're allowed to speak and all sorts of things. Right. So I think that, that barrier discourages people because they don't want to sort of learn the the dance moves for even communicating in a group, let alone like, you know, making affecting change within it. Right. So I, for an example, like I had to meet, you know, we changed the faculty handbook, which is like the, the not it's not it's the parallel to the collective agreement, but on the administrative side. So like everything that happens in the university needs to be in the, you know, the faculty handbook. And we needed that change just to be more reflective of the way things happen. Because there was, you know, super old language in there that was never used, whatever. And, and, you know, let's update it. We're all on the same page. And that was a process that took six months because I needed to get a hold of the provost and get a meeting with the provost and the provost chiefs of staff. The other people on the subcommittee, we needed to de- debate the language, bring it back to the to the group, have that go through. And then from that point, it had to go to the Senate of the whole. So the the whole Senate of the university where it was debated and talked about. So this is like, you know. Best case scenario, it's 60 days from like when you identify something in one of these meetings to the point where you get it sort of back, but that never happens. 
And the only, you know, thing we accomplished in that process that took so long was to like get rid of embarrassingly old text that was in the faculty handbook, you know, like, gosh, if I wanted something more agile and, and quicker and on a, on a softer turnaround, you know, not like six months just to get an idea that we should be doing something differently. Like if I have an idea for a platform, which is really neat. I saw some other school do. Yeah, there's no way people are going to do it. They're just going to, you know, open up a new browser tab and, and find something else to work on, right? So yeah, it's from inside of the the apparatus of of the bureaucracy in the university. Yeah, there's no incentive to to fight that. You know, just get a grant and do it on your own time, right? To defend bureaucracy, and this is a difficult assertion to make. I think that's true of any group. The larger you get the more there is obstacles and obstructions. So you have a small departmental meeting, like in my department, we have, you know, seven or eight people in a meeting. That's a lot different than having a union meeting with 25 people, or in Tim, your case, a thousand people, wherever many people in your union. And then, well, Brock's not that big, but anyway, and then you are talking about Senate, that's another level on top of that. So that's really not like, that's just the nature of large groups, I think, or that is a big contributing factor, I'll say. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no room for tech tech exceptionalism in the university environment, right? Because there's no one that. I think that another big problem with this is the vocabulary. People don't have ways to understand and communicate this stuff. So, you can talk about lazy consensus, which is great. And I tried it when I had a brief stint in management. I tried to do it that way. Well, let's just all pop along, and then if something happens, then we'll reconvene. But you know, there are environments, you know, and. We work with people that are very knowledgeable about one particular thing. I like to think like faculty members are like laser beams. You know, they spend their whole life really focusing in on a, a really narrow, narrow piece of vision. Maybe that's like two, three microns wide. And they, you know, focus that at something. Everything else is peripheral, right? So they don't have the vocabulary, the knowledge that the time they've spent developing platforms or using them to be able even to describe what it is they need because they're just focused on what they're trying to do. It makes sense because you pay them a lot of money, so you don't want them to sort of waste their time on on externalities. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's not doing us any favors because I'm sure there's another parallel to LibGuides swooping in, maybe at the university level, if not, you know, in the library level. There's some capitalists rubbing their hands together, saying, "Oh, I've got a, you know, I've got a gap here. I can exploit and charge money for it." And then I think one of the appeals that administration has is they can cut a check, pay the thing, have it covered off, and then they're okay for a year. And then if if the 3% inflation bump for the contract in the following year is too much, you know, you just, you know, you stop selling it or you stop using it and then it goes away or whatever, right? So it has a lot of systemic problems. But Yeah, I think someone was talking about like the problem with Blackboard is it's so ingrained, even though it's just, it's demonstrably bad, but it does everything that both administrators and faculty kind of want, especially if faculty don't really want to learn how to teach online which was my university until two years ago where they suddenly had to learn how to teach online, which has actually been great for me. Cause like people know how to use zoom rooms. Now people know how to answer their fucking email. Like it's really great. Like no one just keeps knocking on my door, or, you know, every 10 minutes to tell me something that could have been an email or just not being told to me. I know John's got something, but Tim, I do want to hear about what happened at your work that you mentioned earlier with something, uh, breaking down, I think it was a digital humanities lab or something you mentioned earlier. Go ahead, John. Okay. I was just going to briefly say that when Tim was talking about about LibGuide equipment for faculty, it it occurred to me this already happened, and that was MOOCs. And remember for a while, a MOOC, (laughs) MOOCs were putting the fear into faculty, like the real fear that that they're like, oh, will I have a job if they can just sign up for an edX or or something MOOC and, and 
and and that seemed to have largely fallen. I mean, we still have mooks of a sort, but it's they don't seem to be the the sort of world threatening thing they were in you know 2014 or what have you. Well, I mean, John, you were more partic- you were participating in it more than I was, but sort of in the middle aughts, there was like a real optimism about like moving or embracing open source library platforms. Remember yeah. in Ontario universities with Ocoa and, and Evergreen and there was like yeah. stuff popping. It was really neat. And then it, like that enthusiasm just evaporated and, you know, we're all on Ex Libris now and we made a big show of... <laughs> And marketing material of everyone banding together, you know, pouring our money into one, you know, access point. As I hate to bring this up, but I assume Laurentian also ditched. Like, I, I don't know. For the folks who don't know, Laurentian uh, is a university in, in the north of Ontario that quite famously in the last year went bankrupt. Largely because their admin, who have not been punished, by the way, were using money that was, you know, supposed to be for buildings that, you know, donors gave to specific purpose. They were just spending on willy nilly and then eventually caught up with them and and they literally did financial exigency, which is absolutely the nuclear option that some people thought could never, ever happen. Anyway, those folks were for a while. They had a wonderful uh, systems librarian who's still there uh, named Dan Scott, who did implement. Great guy. Yeah. Uh, evergreen and we were supposed to at my place but my the, the ul at the time uh, if i can put it kindly he's very mercurial and he lost interest uh and so we we ditched that and i think laurentian's probably on on collaborative futures now right they must be i would imagine so yeah but my own conception about that is that ils's or LSPs or whatever we're calling them now, whatever like hr systems and like like you know blackboard are inherently terrible. There is no way to make an ILS LSP palatable or fun to work with. Everyone is nodding. <laughs> it's like, they're just, there's something about them that just doesn't lend itself to joy <laughs> in a way oh, that maybe. most other open source software I've deal with, dealt with can. Like they Evergreen, do not God spark joy, so we should get rid of them. <laughs> God bless them, Evergreen, and and they must have gotten better for now. And I, I hate to be to even slightly denigrate them because the people I knew that worked on the project were just wonderful people. But it had one of the messiest setups I've ever done in my entire IT existence. Just incredibly baroque and bad. And it it must be much better now. But this is like in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and it was it was really it was pretty grotty. Uh, and I've yet to see an ILS other than in a pack, uh, RIP that I consider joy to use. <laughs> oh, <geez>. so- <laughs> yeah. I have so, so many feels about this whole trajectory. Yeah. And, and, you know, there was a brief shining moment. I felt so optimistic there and then it just disappeared. It evaporated. And now, you know, there's 15 out of like Ontario probably has what 20 something universities, right, John? Yeah, I think so. And like 16 of them now at this point are all in in one sort of cloud-based solution. So you tell me when like contract renewal season rolls around, you know, they're not going to have like negotiating power to say, oh, you know, we'll take up and leave. This thing took years and years and, you know, stress from so many quarters. There's no way we're leaving this thing in the future. So like they have us over a barrel and we're just going to keep paying the cash and they'll keep doling out tiny little enhancements as the years roll on and we, you know, we sold it out because we, you know, we didn't. It's a sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. 
Yeah, but whenever I feel bad about library purchasing, I always listen to stories about military purchasing. And like, if you think we're over a barrel, like sure, right. we we've got nothing on any military in the world. Like they they are just stuck buying shit they don't even want. They can't warehouse. You know, it's it's way worse. So I don't feel as bad. Plus. Most of the time, stuff in libraries doesn't kill people until we start doing kick jousting, which yeah. was John's new idea for a competitive <laughs> sport hosted in libraries where we use kick stools and joust with them by, I guess, rolling. I'm not sure exactly how it I works, but this. I do like the idea. You have to break them so this. they don't, they don't, uh, if you stand, you know, you stand on the tools to stop, you got to somehow figure out how to break those. Tim, what you said about Alma reminded me, like when I worked in Ohio, that was the situation in Ohio in the 90s and maybe even the late 80s is that every academic institution was on a triple I and there was a union catalog essentially called Ohio Link, which is still there. And you could do patron-initiated interlibrary loan with no interaction or needing to bother an ILL department if it was within the state system. And so I could borrow books from like anywhere within the whole state, and it was amazing. But at the same time, it had to be triple I. Everybody had to be in triple I. So I do not know how the negotiations or fish over a barrel stuff went in the 90s, other than to say that it's quite possible that, that library software companies were not as rapaciously awful in the 90s as they are today and maybe it wasn't really a factor but uh yeah it was it was a one from an end user perspective it was really really wonderful and i'm not sure if our union catalog the alma thing here is is similar in that there'll be a you know you can borrow from another institution greaselessly or not and without filling out a racer request or whatever <laughs> but, i think uh, they're tilting towards that yeah yeah that would be wonderful if if possible i hope that that's i hope they're doing that so we'll see we just hired an ILS librarian here so i imagine he'll get thick into it you have a whole librarian just devoted to ILS. so that's great wow. yeah we used to you not guys. have any we used to have just a not just she was wonderful uh used to have a staff member and now we've graduated to having a librarian do it i'm not exactly sure why but uh i wasn't on the committee for it but i was going to say john use the term rapacious library vendors <laughs> I think back then there used to be some skin in the game. There was multiple choices that you could yeah. go to, right? Like, what are we down to two now, maybe? I'm sure you I all mean, have seen the the Marshall Breedings graph, right? Yeah. Where in the 70s, there's a bunch of different spaghetti and multiple fingers, and then the fingers just sort of conglomerate yeah. well, that's, until that's there's only- any industry. You think about, like, I yeah, come from I a long it. line of car people, unfortunately. Uh, I, I don't particularly like cars, but my father and my grandfather were all thick into automotive. And if you look in the early 1900s, there was 100 million car companies, you know, just a billion. And then they just all collapsed down and down and down. And that's pretty much everything. Like, it's the nature- of technology to consolidate. Uh, think about the history of Unix and think about previous to Linux, how many x86 Unices there were. A jillion. Microsoft made an x86 Unix. Uh, hmm. Nuts. Like we had it in my library even. It was somehow it was involved in book binding. I don't know why, but, uh, and, and, you know, and then Linux got invented and now basically on the x86 space, there is Linux. And then the free BSD, NetBSD, OpenBSD stuff, but mostly just Linux. And so I just think that's how organizations tend to go unless there are forces uh, like anti-monopoly you know, <laughs> to break uh, – like breaking up Bell and – Antitrust, eh? Yeah. Antitrust <laughs> stuff, yeah, which happened in the States and didn't happen here. <laughs> Which is why we have a terrible, well, one of the reasons why we have a terrible telecommunications uh, situation. Oh, gosh, that's a whole episode right there, <laughs> complaining about but the you know CRTC. Yeah. Excellent to talk about this would be Ruth Kitchen Tillman, 
who has done a ginormous amount of research into early automation and libraries and stuff, and and she would know all about this upwards and forwards. So if you do a sh- if you do a show specifically on old cataloging systems and culture surrounding it, she would be excellent to have on because she's really done a whole bunch and it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, we've uh, definitely talked about aside from like these big systems like ILSs and things that like we are really stuck in my library is kind of weird because I feel like our tech services is actually outsized compared to our public services Hmm. for whatever reason. So I feel like, you know, we've got a cataloger and a metadata person and they have library assistants. I feel like we're doing pretty good, but when it comes to preservation and digital humanities projects and support for the things that faculty want to do, it's kind of the situation Sadie was talking about with, Everyone was doing their own thing. People were setting up their own servers left and right. People were getting their own subscriptions to Omeka even, which was just very strange to, for a non-librarian to do. And so we've talked with other digital humanists before about preservation. And I do want to touch on keeping projects going and maintenance uh. work. Because uh, the, <laughs> what, I, what I read from Endings which is uh, building sustainable digital humanities projects. The average assumption is about a 10-year lifespan, but having worked with a lot of people on grants, the grant cycle is only about three years. And I think it's pretty optimistic to imagine something that loses funding will keep running after two years after that. See, yeah, I'm in a... I'm My tale of woe doesn't even get to the point where I'm in a maintaining situation and I've got too many lemons. John, fortunately, is there. Like, we we... we we're not at the sophistication where we've completed a project and have it sort of on the burner. Right. So John, yeah, you know, over to yeah, you. Yeah, The sure. real problem is, and this is, this is a whole can of worms that relates to the library's position in the university uh, generally, but the real temptation, because we love to say yes, especially to faculty is to say yes. When they say, Oh, make this thing. And then you will have it forever. And we at my digital scholarship center decided early on that we would strenuously av- try to avoid doing what we call commodity work, like hosting someone's straight up WordPress and stuff like that. There is a WordPress host at the library, like a multi-host, but we're like, okay, we're not going to do one-offs. And the reason behind that is maintenance because yes, a faculty member has a grant for a year, two years, three years, or they get bored or whatever. And then you're stuck with this thing that needs PHP five or whatever the hell. And, and it becomes, you know, an, even a smaller and smaller ice flow that you are out on the ocean on, and eventually it will melt and drown you. And it's a real, real, real problem because libraries want to be archival in that sense because it's work that we've traditionally done. But archiving IT projects is very different than archiving. Uh, you know, the communications of the office of the president or books or random books or what have you, because of this shifting support for whatever it depends on. And there's ways to ameliorate that, that I don't think at my place we fully looked into like, okay, we'll have your, your interactive site, but when it, when the grant is over, we scrape it and make it flat HTML. So there's no searching, but all the content is there. Or if you could somehow make a, a container like a Docker container, an LXC or something that is stuck on a specific version and therefore is independent of the host version of things, then maybe that would work as well. But it's just, yeah, it's just, a, it can be a real, real mess. Yeah. See, I, I smell another LibGuide parallel or, you know, I was talking about, you know, potential what happens next, but 
I'm, I'm sure you all have heard of Reclaim, right? They're a, an ISP that does, you know, Omika and other stuff. You know, they, they have like a cloud-based thing now that functions like AWS. If we purposefully make ourselves obsolete, you're going to have like professors go directly to these companies, pay for product. And then, you know, when the grant runs out, the site gets shut off and then la-di-da disappears down the memory hole forever. And I, I think, you know, this ties into our conversation about saying yes to things. We're going to be... We're going to hit this apocalypse, I think, soonish, right? Where people mm. are like, no, nuts to you guys. You're not helping us. You're not playing ball. I'm going to take our, you know, game elsewhere, pay for the cloud thing. When the cloud thing runs up, the thing disappears and it's gone forever, right? They, they got their citation or whatever they wanted out of it. And, you know, and it's lost for forever, right? So, yeah, I don't know how that gets sorted. Maybe Internet Archive has, you know, Docker, you know, full-blown ass operating system environments they're doing video game terminals and mame and and websites why why not <laughs> a, a whole linux container virtualized in an internet archive interface i don't know whatever i've been told because i wrote a chapter about cloud computing and libraries i've been told by the person who runs the wayback machine that it does in fact capture everything even if it doesn't play it back I, I assume he's right. He, he works there. But I have never been able to figure out how to actually get all the data that the Internet Archive pulls out. Um, and I never really had any incentive to keep working with the Internet Archive. So a big thing we've been doing at my work is consolidating because people were using Reclaim hosting. And that was like where we found people posting their shit. And we were like, okay, we actually have like a Reclaim hosting that we were doing. We finally have locally hosted Omeka, but we went with Classic because we thought some of the plugins were better. And I think that was probably a mistake. We should have gone with the multi-site, but we've got it at least, and we can use it and we can point things to it. But with the old hosting, all those redirects couldn't work because we weren't paying for the hosting anymore. So links got broken. A couple of faculty were like, where'd my shit go? I was like, oh, sorry, it's here now. I'm sorry. I know you do the citation. You were needing it. It's sorry. Mm. But, you know, you don't want that to happen. The thing I'm most nervous about right now is we have an externally hosted press books for open education resources. And it's it's not super expensive, but it's expensive enough where I worry, like, who might discontinue the service? And then where do all these projects mm. go if people are really using them? Because it's basically WordPress. It's, it's a multi-site WordPress you can build anything in it. It's really useful for education. If we could host it locally, we would have. But, you know, Omeka, I know John knows the whole saga because I was complaining to him the whole time I was dealing with my IT for Omeka. It took like months. So a big multi-site WordPress was never going to fucking happen. But I do worry about the sustainability in terms of, you know, does admin lose their interest? Even though admin was the one who pushed me over the edge to say yes to it, I was kind of like, well, if we can't commit forever early, you know, 10 years, maybe you shouldn't really go ahead. But he was like, oh, we'll commit, we'll commit, we'll do it. Like, okay, and, we'll do it. Yeah. And this goes back to, you know, John, I'll give it to you in a second here, like administration, not knowing the terminology or the lingo or the ramifications of any of this stuff, right? They're just interested in putting a, a smile on a faculty member's face. They don't know yep. what they're signing their staff up for, right? For sure. It's weird that you say that because in, in my experience, WordPress MU is about a million times easier to set up than Omika S or Omika Classic. Well, not a million, but it's easier to set up. So why would you turn up your nose at, at WP? Actually, there's no WP MU anymore. It's a single code base, which is something Omika should consider. <laughs> but uh, They will not touch back, WordPress. Yeah, well, fair enough. It, it is a popular target, and, and we have had hacked WordPress before. Uh, but mentioning, did not OCLC have a persistent URL program? They're like, your URLs will live forever on OCLC. 
with Pearl and no matter what happens, there'll be a URL. And then they just decided to fuck off with it. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Wow. I, I don't, I don't have any recall of that, but uh, I, mean, I could be, I could be mistaken. It but sounds like think, something that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it does. So I'm inclined to believe it. I mean, you Pearl can, you like can, a URI thing. Yeah. We, we gotta, we gotta do DOIs for everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Deal. Exactly. But it was some, I want to say there was some service they had. And they're like, yeah, it's going to be there forever. And then they decided not to be there anymore. I, have to, I can't I have believe to... you're telling me OCLC would not do something in the best interest of libraries in general, John. I don't, I don't agree with you that that actually happened. So I remember going to OCLC headquarters in 1996 and thinking, this is the gussiest, fanciest nonprofit place I've ever been to. <laughs> That was 96. They're probably gussier and fancier now. Oh, they're, they're spending all that sweet, sweet, easy proxy licensing money. You know? Yeah. Yeah, there we go. If you go to OCLC research page, it says that Internet Archive now maintains Perl and redirects and stuff as of 2016. So they introduced 95 and they managed it and then they decided, eh, all right. Well, so they didn't completely abandon it, but they made the IA deal with it, which, okay. I feel like handle is supposed to allow for this, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. but I've never figured out how to get a handle to redirect yeah. uh, because we did have to migrate from DSpace to BPress early when, when I started this job. And there was not a ton of stuff, but I was like, how do we get these handles to redirect? Could not figure it out for the life of me. Um, and also the Oof. original stuff was gone. So like, I don't know how to get these handles to move and point to BPress. It's, it's just like, these are broken now. Um, I, I kind of feel when it comes to Skullcom stuff at this point, it's just it's just locks. It's just lots of copies keep stuff safe. It's mm. just it doesn't matter if there's five versions of your scholarly article. One's on archive.org, one's on BPress, one's on the publisher site. It doesn't matter because like two of those might go away. So I just feel like fuck it. Let's just have like five copies of every research article that comes out from now on. Fine. Like we should just plop it all on the IPFS. You know, yeah. Hopefully, survive a nuke and. <laughs> Somehow a Google search will find what you need and, you know, let's get on with life. I don't know. It's... Tim, if you tie that with NFTs, you can make a oh. serious library proposal, conference proposal, man. I was going to make on, an NFT it. joke. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> How do we keep track of all of these different like, There are some legitimate tech in there, but then it's just dude bros <laughs> being assholes about it. Don't like, I'm like, NFT dude, stop ruining IPFS. <laughs> We need to spend a lot of carbon figuring out how we can link to a PDF of like a 10-page journal article that 10 people <laughs> in the world will need. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, it is an application in search of a use case, which is the most insane thing about how long people have been looking for a way to properly use blockchain to do anything. And it's like, well, if you don't need it to do it, why are you making it complicated? Doesn't it? Yeah, Man, it do some it. people are just in love with scarcity. I mean, you have something which is designed to defeat scarcity Money. and you're trying to... <laughs> exactly. And you're trying to shoehorn scarcity onto it for your own bullshit purposes. Ah. Monetization of everything. I mean, even if you wanted to use it for like tracking provenance or something, which is the only thing I think it would be useful for, it would still like, there's other ways of tracking provenance that you just exactly. put it in the provenance field. We have talked before about put it OCLC, in the provenance though. machine. <laughs> put it in the field and mark that's for provenance. I don't know. Nine. <laughs> 969, whatever the provenance field is. I never needed to <laughs> 42069. use 42069. Yeah, 42069 mm. field. <laughs> the nice field. <laughs> the nice field. <laughs> I wonder actually what is Mark 069? Hang on. 
<laughs> oh, we're getting we're getting and deep. This is a one percenter, eh? This is this is for the fans. This other system control number. Boo. So and National Library of Medicine unique ID, National Library of Medicine serial control number. So you could have a sex thing in the sixty nine <laughs> field if you have a sexual study. This could work. We can make this happen. Okay, we got it. Yeah, yeah, it's time to it's we time to write the, the grant. Yeah, yeah. What's Spirit bomb hands, everyone, put Look them up. up. <laughs> okay, I'm excited for that. I hope all of our catalogers. That's why we should keep Mark around. <laughs> but the thing is, like, it's it's not just the technical debt of Mark. Um, you know, we I, I know um, people have been talking about Bib Frame's kind of failure, and I I think that was also why I wrote lazy consensus right underneath it because I feel like Bib Frame was meetinged to death. Um, was consensus to death. But even then, the the ownership of the cataloging records and everything with OCLC that we've recently seen in the lawsuit has been there's there's money in the game too. A lot of uh, and a lot of it. Wait, there's a recent lawsuit? Like a recent one? Like unrelated to Sky River from a million years ago? No, we did an episode on this, man. Uh, oh, <laughs> with yeah. Use. Gotta check the archive, John. Yeah, oh, it was a few weeks ago. We did an episode on Clarivate. It has a new product that they were trying to get Mark records from libraries to start populating. And Mark uh, and OCLC went after Clarivate for enticing libraries to breach contracts. Didn't go after uh, the libraries for actually breaching contract for sharing the records, which was kind of strange because like other libraries like um, like Harvard have made their catalog records open source. So. It is strange to both allow some customers to do that and others to not. But yeah, it's 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 basically Sky River too. Mm-hmm. The Rivening Electric Boogaloo. Yeah, uh, whenever I think of Bib Frame, I think of the Obi Wan Kenobi meme where he's you know you were supposed to be the chosen one, and he's just screaming and. <laughs> right, because it's like I like the idea of it a lot. But then it's just all those annoying conference presentations of look, we're going to Google a book, and your library shows up in the Google results. I'm like, that's not what this is for. Yeah, link data. You're my brother, Anakin. (laughs) You're supposed to link the data, not confine it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Exactly. Let's get this to work with AACR2. That'll be fine. They still use that, eh? No, they they would. RDF, RDA, RDA, but it's the same thing. And RDA is a closed standard. Because, like, what's sad is I'm the one catalog. Oops, my phone fell off the charger. The one cataloger in the history of the world who likes RDA, except for the fact that it's a closed standard. But it's a closed standard. You have to pay to be able to even, like, read how you're supposed to fucking use it. Well, I mean, Dewey, Dewey Decimal, DDC is closed, right? LCSH, uh, yeah, right? Dewey also like, sucks. All- Sorry, Violet. Yeah. <laughs> They're all like licensed in summer. Someone's making money off of them for sure, right? There's nothing, nothing for free. Not. Is yeah. is open. Oh, is it? Okay. For I mean, sure. they're still like the catalogers desktop, but you don't have to have that to know how to read uh, LC. I mean, LC still also sucks. They wow. all suck. But uh, <laughs> um, at least LC is like free and marks free. Uh, one thing that I, I, there are three things I miss about the United States of America and living there. And one is, is food. And the other is highway rest areas. And the third thing is no crown copyright. So we have a thing here where things oh, yeah. that the government makes are still copyrighted. And in the U.S., where things are, are at least at the federal level, op- public domain by default is one of the most wonderful things about the United States. Does the queen fucking have copyright over Yeah. 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 It's got her Fuck name on everything. Fuck that old bitch. Yeah. 
the queen here's an interesting thing the queen owns every piece of land in canada like parasite in chief and her yeah, idiot hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like the queen owns so much stuff including i Fuck guess copyrights her. i don't know i don't know Fuck yep. that old bitch I can't say that because I had to tell a judge that I loved her, so I have to. I have to be on record that I love the yeah, queen. This is, this is the seditious, UK's bullshit, right like libel laws. Like, yes, uh, do they count in Canada? So we'll say They're, fuck you, yeah, on your behalf. Yeah, no, it's, we're published in the United States. We don't have to. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that doesn't matter because even if it's fuck published in the United bitch. States, it, the fact that Tim and I are Canadian means that we would be behest to libel laws. And in fact, there was a very famous case, if you remember that, not that long ago with Team Harpy, if you remember Team Harpy, uh, where there was a, a libel case that was done in Canada because Canada is much closer to the UK in libel situation than the US. And then that was ultimately they lost that case. So, But we yeah. can say fuck that old bitch because we're in the United States. Yep. Even if you're on the pod, like you can't say it, but we can say it well, twice as now, much because be on very, your behalf. It'd be very unlikely for Queen Elizabeth II, ruler of Canada and the UK, to particularly sue me for saying something about her. But yes. Yeah, especially because she's dead. Oh, what? <laughs> so she can't sue anyone. Oh, my God. No, that's Joe Biden. <laughs> Yeah, she's been weakened at Bernie's for like the past like six months. I'm pretty sure. I'll just uh, I'll just use an incantation that John I know he loves. Just play the academic freedom card. I can I can be seditious about the Queen because uh, you know academic freedom, academic freedom, baby. Okay, I had two music drops made because I I didn't get to the maintainers and when we well I didn't when I when I mentioned the maintainers I didn't use the at the beginning. I was about to say. I had it in my head, and I was like, what's their best song? And then we also read a little bit about Angles, so I just had to... I did walk a lot today. I didn't quite walk um, 500 miles. (laughs) I did walk a lot, so (laughs) just to prepare. I saw them headline at Lollapalooza. It was great. The maintainers. Proclaimers or Pearl Jam? Oh, I see. Is there anything? Is there anything we missed? Is there anything we wanted to circle back on before we close out? I think we should talk about marks more since there were two marks. Yeah. Well, th- that was because I had a whip round and Sam, because Sam is Sam, Sam Popovich said, "Yes, put this mark stuff in here." And I read the Fragnon machines. To be honest with you, I, I found it difficult to follow. <laughs> Well, that's that's Mark's generally. And the Angles so, thing was yeah. funny because Angles lost interest at the end of it, if you'll notice. He's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Unfinished. dot, dot, dot. And I'm like, damn, Angles, ADHD much? But Sam said, well, he was pretty busy because his friend had died and he was doing other stuff. But the Grundrisse, which is where, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but which is where the fragment comes from. I always think of it as like the Silmarillion of Mark's. It's just like this big, massive, <laughs> yeah, massive just- bunch of shit that wasn't finished. It's and, and impenetrable. Is kind of yeah. Dubious. But my understanding about the the fragment on machines, it is very unlike anything else he's ever written in that it's sort of directly, not maybe not directly, but but alludes to the invalidation of, of labor as the source of all productivity and all the source of all wealth rather. And so that's it. That is interesting in and of itself. But uh, I'm not marxist enough to to really comment on it See. i've been learning marx mainly through going through the backlogs of the, the, the horror vanguard um like patreon subscriber feed with the their book clubs then where they okay. are going through some some gothic marxist 
texts. And gothic Marxist texts. Wow. It's actually like a whole field of Gothic Marxism. Dang. Because um, Marx talked about like vampires and shit and did body horror with tables, talking about commodity fetishism and Ooh. all sorts Ooh. of shit. Yeah, Marx was like a, a goth. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. <laughs> but that's how I've been learning, getting more into Marx and other Marxian theory is just goth shit <laughs> so yeah. the, the problem with this fragment is you need to be familiar with at least like capital volume one to understand because some of the terms are defined in capital so like you know what you need to know what use value is you need to know what he's talking about capital is capital and stuff but it's really interesting because I, I found it pretty interesting because the usual formulation is like raw material plus labor equals product and he's saying actually since we've made this distinction between circulating goods uh, circulating capital which is the raw materials and the product and the fixed capital which is the labor we can separate those two things and then the the whole labor process becomes part of every single thing it kind of is uh cyclical over on on top of it but then he goes into machines becoming this uh what's what was the word i'm i'm uh objectified labor Ah. becomes objectified labor in which once things become autonomous, Marx imagines that the only thing that humans really do is they work to the machine's schedule rather than their own schedule. And they, they exist just to maintain the machine that maintains itself only for profit. And they're this sort of conscious goo that keeps the machine running. But this is not why Donna really, Haraway is a Marxist. <laughs> yeah. But they don't use machines like instruments like a hacksaw or a hammer it's not an instrument anymore it is now an embodiment he says it has a soul so some cyborg shit yeah Yeah. so coincidentally haraway was a marxist that that ph that spite phd i was telling you about earlier i'm trying to pull in the marxist angle uh to describe marxist angle i see what you did there (laughs) i gotta stop i can't i can't you know, that's it. It's going out on a high note. I can't say anything else after that. One, right? sure. Got your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to enrich my sort of dumping on ex- accessible use policies by bringing in a Marxist angle. So the more I can say Marxist in this, the more I can convince my supervisor that I know what I'm doing. So I'm going <laughs> to send him a link to this episode of the podcast and say, look, I'm engaging in, you know, a scholarly debate with others about this thing I'm going to write a dissertation on. And then he'll give me a pass. Marxian stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Justin, how much of Marx have you read? Have you actually read Capital? I haven't finished Capital simply Mm -hmm. because I never have had like a group to work through it with. I've mostly focused on Marxist historian kind of stuff. So where he's talking about stages of history and historical materialism and actually how to do history. Um, Because once you start getting into capital, it really gets into where like we are defining terms and we're going to do that for a long time. And Marx does this really annoying thing. Here's a tip. If you're ever going to read Marx, whenever Marx says it appeared or apparently he's about to lie to you. It's a really annoying <laughs> thing he does. But he tell, he's, whenever he says, apparently he's about to tell you a thing that is not true because he's a, he's going to say, it's not that it appeared to be that, but it's not that. So every time he says, apparently I just have to highlight it to be like, okay, the next sentence is a lie. It's something he doesn't believe, but you have to get to the end of the paragraph or the next paragraph to figure out what he actually thinks, because he's going <laughs> to explain like why this doesn't work. Isn't that what they call the dialectic? (laughs) I mean, it's, I I call it annoying. I think it's, uh, (laughs) I I think I I I put on a tweet earlier today that if I met Marx, I think I might find him kind of annoying. Yeah, um, probably. If we were to hang out. I imagine myself talking to historical figures a lot since I spent a lot of time reading primary sources uh, when I was younger. It's just a weird habit I picked up. 
So I and imagine was, I would find him. Really who is the best historical figure you would like to speak with or mm-hmm. hang out with of your primary oh, sources? Who you wouldn't find annoying. Yes. Or like during blunt rotation. <laughs> I don't know. Who do I really – I feel like Marcus Aurelius would be fun to actually talk to about stuff. Hmm. Because he has I, like I untreated depression and that's what stoicism is, is a philosophy yeah, the, justifying depression. It's a bunch of like we hate fun. fun. It it, it's fun. like it's like you're also proto, a depressed person. It's like Fair. proto Jordan Peterson, but good. <laughs> oh. Like you should wake up early in the morning, and you should not focus on death too much. And, and you, you should, should only eat meat. Room. Constant eating of meat, and you should go into mm-hmm. a coma. <laughs> meat coma. You shouldn't be one of those like fruity Greeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who eat who eat meat? I don't know. I spent a lot of time like having conversations in my head with John Adams because I wrote my undergraduate thesis on on his work. So I read a lot of his letters. And so I know way too much about that dude. The only thing I know about John Adams is from the incredible movie adaptation musical of 1776. Like, fuck Hamilton. 1776 is where it's at, baby. Got some solid William and Mary dunking on Harvard content in there. Um, but then also there is an opera composer contemporary named John Adams. He's the one who did Nixon in China oh, as yeah. well as Dr. Atomic. Um, he's a 20th century, 21st century um, opera dude. He didn't, Nixon he didn't in do China's Einstein on the pr- beach, did he? No. That's Philip Glass. Right, 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 right. Philip Glass has done Einstein on the beach, Akhenaten, which is my favorite opera. Uh, one about Gandhi and I forget what it's called. Right. Satragaya or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's Philip Glass. But yeah, Nixon in China is really fun. People should go watch Nixon in China and Dr. Atomic. They're both great. And people should also go watch the Chinese anime of the life of Karl Marx, which is an animated six episode series where Marx is a very pretty man. He's like a tall, slender man. Did they make him a twink? Yeah, he's a twink. <laughs> yes, and, I could. Uh, I could probably watch that for credit. Yeah, I got to write this down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we should uh, do like a double feature, like a double feature of Nixon in China and the leader. Let's do the that. The leader's so fucking good. It's the most insane. Shit. So is Nixon in China, bitches. <laughs> it's produced by the Chinese government, so it's just like doesn't mention any of like the downsides of his personality, like any of his affairs or Whoa. anything like that. Nixon, um, the- Nixon in China has got an incredible aria of I am the wife of uh, Mao Zedong, like however you say his name, um, where it's like her doing an aria. It's really good. Man, I've just seen the cover of the of the leader, and that is a as a handsome Marx. <laughs> it does not. I would not guess that's him. There's no beard Twink for Marx. one thing. Dang. Twink marks. Yeah, no beard, no no alcohol face, no curly yeah. hair. Yeah, uh, what the hell, very, man? Very not him. Bruno Bauer also in it for a large amount. I don't really know why, but I didn't even know they knew each other. I only knew Bruno Bauer from his religious writing. Fun, fun times. The last time people took scholarship in the Bible seriously before all the non-religious people got out of it. Uh, okay, I think we've covered everything. Is there anything you either of you want to plug in terms of uh, work that's coming out or your Twitter handles or anything else or where people can find you? You go first, John. You got some book chapters out, don't you, Tim? Oh, okay. Yeah, I su- I'm happy we didn't discuss it because, uh, well, I'm, whatever. <laughs> I'm the cad that came up with list grievances. Oh yeah. So listgrievances.com, check it out, and then hate me for it. Uh, I took a five year 
I, I got the first five years of tweets submitted to it. And I've done a, a text analysis of them all on a bunch of other dimensions and stuff. So there's this book coming out in the fall it's called Libraries as Dysfunctional Organizations and Workplaces, uh, edited by a gentleman named Spencer Acadia, really great guy. It, there's a book chapter there about the shit talking, and I get a swear word in my CV because I use a swear word in the title of the chapter. So please check it out. You know, I'll post the uh, the chapter for free uh, so you don't have to pay for anything. But that, that will be in November anyways. And then, yeah, uh, I'm Electronic on Twitter. And, you know, I'm I'm like Flavor Flav to John, uh, John's Chuck D. You know, he'll say a lot of stuff and I just like <laughs> echo what he says. Yeah, John, go for it. You're great. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm at ADR on Twitter and, and yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I don't have any book chapters because I, I hate writing. I can't stand it. I have a writing degree and I, I never, I've never used it. I'm barely literate. Um, but, uh, yeah, nothing to plug. Well, whenever you do your next podcast, you can plug this one and be like, I was oh, on okay. library punk. I will do that. Yeah. Good night. <laughs>